0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Diversity Be Like, a podcast that explores the nuanced dynamics of diversity and what true inclusion, equity, and respect looks like. Each week, we interview industry leaders and subject matter experts in the space to get their take on why all of this is so important. I'm your host, Sequoia Houston. Today, I'll be talking to a very special guest, Senator Cory McRae. Senator McRae was elected into office in 2018 and serves as a member of the Maryland Senate for Maryland's 45th District. Located in Northeast Baltimore City, and without further ado, welcome Senator McCray.
1: Ah, uh, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: I'm so happy to have you here, and and I thank you for coming because there are certain people that I really want to have because I think that they have such valuable experience and and can really talk to the people, and it's like ah. Oh should I ask or will they come? And I ask you, and you're like, yeah, fine. <laughs> when do I need to be there? <laughs> and that doesn't always happen. So I appreciate that so much. And I know my guests will as well. So I gave a very, very brief introduction <laughs> of you. Tell us about yourself. Tell us how you got started and, and with what you do.
1: Yep. So uh, born and raised in the city of Baltimore. I live in Overly. I live there. My wife, Demetria, she grew up in Oliver. Uh, we had four kids. We got a Kennedy, Reagan, CJ, and Bryson. I graduated from Fairmont Harford, currently, reaches in the building right there on Harford and 25th. I then, after graduating from Fairmont Harford, I then uh, went into an apprenticeship program, a five year electrical apprenticeship program. I uh, was able to gain a craft from going through that apprenticeship program. I started buying houses for those folks that are familiar with Bel Air Road. I've uh, been buying houses up and down Bel Air since I was 20 years of age. I got into politics, uh, Sequoia, not thinking like I, I always tell folks women are smarter than men sometimes <laughs> um, because my wife, I've known her since we were 17 years of age. And as soon as she turned 18, she started voting. My attitude towards voting was they leave me alone. I leave them alone.
0: Mm. And
1: one of the things that I started to realize, especially as I graduated through the apprenticeship, as I went and started to become a small business owner, politics is just intertwined in everything that we do right. so you think about when the street lights come on and if they if, if they're off how long does it come take for them to come back on how long does it take for bg to service them the roads you know you think about the potholes and things of that nature all of these things are political decisions that are made on a local state or federal level eventually i want to say probably late 20s i did pay attention to politics And when I what I saw was that the folks that were serving us in these positions at the moment weren't serving us to the best of their ability. Mm. And I try my best to get behind good individuals that were running for office. What I found then when I tried to support good people, I realized that you had these machines. Yeah. East Baltimore machine. Yeah. West Baltimore machine folks just couldn't cut through. They couldn't cut through for a variation of different reasons. It could have been because they didn't have the resources, so the money in order to, to get there. Sometimes it was just the work ethic. The, you got to talk to a significant amount of people. So I put myself forward back in 2014, ran for the House of Delegates. We organized a couple hundred young folks and we won. So in the House of Delegates, you just need to be the top three. So we were came in third place. So all of a sudden, I'm in Annapolis. I'd never been in the cha- any chamber, so not the Senate or the House chamber once before. <laughs> I'd always been on the outside, mm-hmm. you know, at a couple of rallies, but never had that experience. But I knew, Sequoia, that I had common sense. I had a will and love for my people, and I wanted to do the right thing. We went into the House of Delegates, and we kicked that door down. One of the first pieces of legislation that I was able to work on was voting rights. Folks that were on parole or probation did not have the right to vote until 2016, and that was an effort that we led with HB 940. I'll never forget it, because right now I feel as though that is one of the, if not the, biggest accomplishment. This was 40,000 people that were impacted and got the right to vote for the first time in 2016. And I just think back on that and those arbitrary barriers that we have all up and down statute and how we can remove those barriers and make sure that folks uh, just get the opportunity that everyone deserves, the basic fundamental right to vote.
0: Absolutely.
1: After that, you know, worked on like increasing apprenticeship opportunities. I worked on transparency in government. And Sequoia, I'll finish with eventually uh, when I was in the House of Delegates, I felt like we were moving the ball up the field. I felt like the needle was moving. Unfortunately, every time I felt like I was getting five yards, it was like somebody was taking two yards away from me. Mm. And those decisions were made not with me sitting at the table, but they were made because of other indirect decisions that 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 were happening. So I decided at that time, like, look, I never signed up to be a full-time elected official. I said, I, I had a ball. I accomplished a great amount for, to be there for four years. But I said, look, the Senate chamber has 47 individuals. The House chamber has 141. And there's the opportunity to make a a greater amount of change and what I did was I said, I'm up and out. I said, I know my talents. I know that I'm talented. I can go do anything that I want in life. Um, so either I'm going to run for this office, if I'm successful, I just go back and and serve my community in other ways. Well, we took on the second highest senator in the state of Maryland. Mm-hmm. So it was not an easy task. And I'll say that i never worked that hard in my life to accomplish anything. But we were successful in 2018. June 2018, we actually won the Maryland State Senate seat, and we came over here, hit the ground running, and really enjoy it. I sit on the Budget and Taxation Committee. Currently, it's a $58 billion budget that we get to chop up. So imagine 13 people in one chamber chopping up very heavy decisions that's being made around housing, public safety, education, roads, et cetera, et cetera. And I got the unique opportunity to be the subcommittee chair. So you have four subcommittees on budget and taxation, but okay. I chair the issues, subject matters of public safety, transportation, and environment. So all of those respective agencies falls under our purview and we get to make ind- decisions on that. And it's four of us that's making decisions on that piece of it. So so it's, just, it's, it's like when I was in the house, I felt like I had to fight for power every day I woke up. When Mm -hmm. I got in the Senate, they was like, hey, you want some power today? I was like, let's go lead. Like, let's go forward. So I've been having a great time in the Senate and look forward to continuing this journey and represent my folks back home in East Baltimore.
0: Absolutely. And it seems like you are doing just that. Like I was looking at your record and it seems like you've introduced what, 27, 28 bills all related to things that are important to people in your community.
1: Very very intentional. I tell folks I don't sponsor unless I care about it. So if you see my name signed on or something, it was very intentional. Mm -hmm. I don't co-sponsor stuff. So if you see my name co-sponsored on something, it it was very intentional. Mine's is how do I move the needle for the communities that need it the most? And how do we give them the competitive edge in everything that we do? So while some people, other folks may benefit, I need to be putting in, because they've been so far ignored, neglected, I need to be figuring out how do I move them at a greater pace than what everybody else is moving at.
0: Right. Absolutely. One of the things that I love about, I'm back in California now, but I lived in Maryland for, uh, what, three years. And the thing that I loved about Baltimore, folks from Baltimore, is they love Baltimore, right? You ask somebody, (laughs) hey, are you from Maryland? And they're like, no, I'm from Baltimore. (laughs) <laughs>
1: it's like okay right hey, so, so, so so, folks be like uh, they be like hey I'm from Baltimore I'll be like what part of town you in they be like Anne Arundel I'll be like no you from Anne Arundel you know? right. Like Baltimore, you're not from Baltimore, you not from Baltimore. It's, 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 you're the Baltimore region but not from like Baltimore <laughs> like, like because at the end of the day it's certain things that our young folks go through that are not in other areas you know ch- the education system the mm-hmm. neighborhoods that they live in so these fundamental things and, and what happens is a little bit of challenge can make you a great person, too. So if you've got everything easy in life, it is there. But some form of adversity is a is is very healthy, right. um, just in reference to the growth of us as people. And when I say that our young people face a certain level of adversity that's not faced in other places, I respect our young people, especially if you find them doing great things, I'm like, no, I know where she came from. I know that neighborhood. And for yeah. her to be in this situation, she's blessed. And 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 I feel the same way. I'm blessed in a situation from a family, from an economic standpoint. And my thing is, how can I open this door for more people to come through?
0: Absolutely. I think one of the things that most people who are not from the area or haven't been or had the opportunity to live in the area know about Baltimore is the wire. Right. And we saw mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. how it can be and how greedy it can be. In general, people from neighborhoods like that do kind of get bothered more and get in trouble more for a number of reasons. Some of it just being Mm -hmm. that they're harassed Mm -hmm. by people and things like that. I know I won't Mm -hmm. get too deep into your background, but I'll let or I'll let you share Mm -hmm. what you want to share about that. But I know from if you look online, there were some you came from that inner city and you Mm -hmm. dealt with Mm -hmm. the things Mm -hmm. that people from inner cities Mm -hmm. deal with. Mm -hmm. You were able to correct course, right, and correct course in a very Mm -hmm. serious and positive way. Mm -hmm. Is there a single influence or event that helped you say, you know what, I'm not even trying to go down that road that I've seen. Mm -hmm. I want to go down this Mm -hmm. better path.
1: So so just so that the listening audience know what you're referencing, when I was a juvenile, I was out there. So like I caught my first gun charge. I was 13 years of age. I caught one every year until I turned 18, was charged as an adult twice before turning 18, had did 10 months as a juvenile uh, out in uh, uh, one of one of our correctional facilities. And like if you would have asked anybody about Corey McCray, they would have probably said, ah. I I ain't betting on him like it's no way. And and if they say, hey, he was a house of dollars or in the Senate, they'd be like, hell no. They'd be like, no, it's (laughs) no way that that guy is there. But the question that you ask, and this is important for our young people to know. So so I was always tired because I grew up in a family where it's a single mother. So nobody wants to hurt their mother. The challenge is, is that when you walk out and you see different elements and you're trying your best to escape those elements, And the only way that or only vehicle, the only path forward is what you see in front of you. You're limited in reference to your exposure and you can't see anything else. Mm -hmm. So like what happens is I always tell folks the the change that really, really hit me was I did the 10 months. I think I was home for 30 days and, you know, I was locked back up. So. I remember my mother, and I remember talking to, her and I can remember saying, "Like, look, I'm gone. Like, I'm done. Like, like you, you got to stop." And she said, "Corey, I'm not gonna stop believing in, in you until you believe in yourself." And like, she never gave up on her son. And mm. I tell folks in, about the apprenticeship program, but it was my mother that actually found the apprenticeship program for me. She, she had reached out to the Maryland Department of Labor. She said, "Send me every apprenticeship program that you have in the state of Maryland." Went, filled out applications, and then uh, was accepted into that electrical apprenticeship program. But Sequoia, the difference with this was because all I was doing was trying to make some money. But the difference was that it took me out of the four by four neighborhoods that I knew, like those blocks right there, my limited exposure. And then it exposed me to folks that were business owners, that had owned rental property, that had owned different things. And I just looked at it different. So I just needed to be around it. And when Mm. I saw them, I said, they're no smarter than I am. So, like, instead of, I, I just started hustling in a different way. So I bought my first house at 20. I saved up my money, similar like if I was on the streets. And then next thing you know, I saved up some more money and I bought another house the next year. So like I knew that I, I only needed three to 5% to put down on these houses. And every year I would just work my tail off and I was hustling. And every year I would buy a house. So everybody else was buying these nice 30, 40000 cars. I was driving a hoopty buying houses. And, yeah. and that, that was how I grew up all my life. I've been hustling. So it came natural. I just needed to be exposed to something different. So you say, what was the change change agent that that kind of course correct in your life? The ability to be able to make resources. And I ain't talking about a little bit of resources, talking about a $3 raise every year going through that apprenticeship program. I got four kids now talking about the employer paying for your health care. When I get to retire, you'd be able to retire with dignity. But having the opportunity not only to make a decent wage, save my money and then invest back in my community. Every house that I own is within 10 minutes away I live at. So I've always been trying to make the spaces that i have used to, that I grew up around, a better space. Making the the folks that rent from me like I have a great relationship with them. Like mm-hmm. they, they are, they're not in and out every year. They've been there for 10 years. They've been there for 15. Like they've been there long term folks. But like th- that was what shifted the trajectory of my life is is kind of just being around, being exposed and seeing different things.
0: Absolutely. So with that, are you are any of the initiatives that you're working on right now intended to create other opportunities like that for people to, to course correct? And to be able to have different experiences that expose them to those positive elements that could change their life in such a positive way.
1: Yeah. So I've always worked on increasing apprenticeship opportunities and believe that we've done just so. So I'll talk about some of the stuff that we have um, the current year that we're in. So, like MAFE, MAFE is what, what folks, I, I was driving when I was 16. I bought a car, I went and got my license. The unfortunate, this hearing happened yesterday. Sequoia, my car okay. cost $850. My insurance costs three hundred dollars a month, so three hundred dollars a month for liability, so after three months, I paid more in insurance than I paid for the car itself. Mm. and what I did was we have in statute, as I talked about these arbitrary barriers, where there's a certain population of folks, typically white men, that get to make more money because if you don't have thirty percent of that insurance premium or being able to pay it off in four installments, you have to use a premium insurance company to uh, pay for your uh, MAFE insurance. So that's robbing and it's taking so much wealth out of our communities because right. they're paying like an 18 percent interest rate on this insurance policy that they're that that, that they hold. And like, you're like, so if I imagine if I was able, I'm paying 300. Imagine if I paid 200 and was able to save that $100. Imagine if I was paying 150, able to save that hundred, how much money would be in my community versus the premium insurance agency's pocket and what that would be able to do and recycle back in my community. So I think about intentional things like that. I think about food deserts. So it's a number of our neighborhoods that don't have supermarkets. Folks will find that hard to believe. But like you got twenty three liquor stores in one mile of each other, mm-hmm. but you don't have any a fresh apple or orange or, or vegetables and things of that nature. So we have a capital initiative that's being put in the where we'll help subsidize that grocery store that goes in the Somerset neighborhood from a state level, and then make sure that we can lower them because the incentive is there. Because one of the things that they yell about is that hey, I just can't make the money, or it's just the cost of doing business is too high. If if we have a million dollar subsidy, what, what Help me understand what's the problem now. um, Absolutely.
0: uh, I I love that. I know I grew up, I I was a military brat, but my dad's side of the family is from Dayton, Ohio. And my Mm -hmm. grandmother lived in what I now know is a food desert. When I was growing up, there was a Kroger that was down the street, but they, you know, said they got tired of getting robbed and all of that stuff. So they took the Kroger out. The only Mm -hmm. other place was, it was like a meat market. It's called Estridge Market. And it had some stuff. Right. But it didn't have enough to really support the full community. And the stuff was a little bit more expensive there. But even still, once my grandmother got to a point where she was kind of more, you know, down and wasn't really able to drive herself and all that stuff, she couldn't she couldn't even get there. Right. And there was nowhere that was very close. There were a bunch of there were a bunch of restaurants and fast food things. And like you said, liquor stores and things like that but not places that have a lot of really healthy options. And, a, and her, she had preventable health issues that were, I believe, nutrient based. And a lot of the people that are on the block that passed away, passed away from those types of health issues that probably could have been prevented had they had access to a great source of nutrients. I, I definitely think that that's all of what you said is important, but that mm-hmm. I, I could definitely see that because I've, understand that very intimately.
1: Yeah, it's sad, but it's true that zip codes determine life expectancy. And if you live in one zip code, you can live 10, 20 years longer. And that's unfortunate. It shouldn't be that way. We have to address those issues that are making it.
0: Absolutely. So you talk about all of these different things and you talk about, you know, your experience growing up and all of that and how you kind of it sounds almost in, in many ways became an accidental advocate and being in this space of elevating marginalized voices and things like that. You said you 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 pride yourself on listening to your wife and, and <laughs> paying attention to her. But what was it that actually made you make that leap to say, you know what, I'm going to this is.
1: You know what? All my life at that point in time, I spent chasing money. And you realize that money isn't the end all be all. The reality is, is that in folks that notice, like folks that experience this notice, the greatest feeling is when you're able to help others and get more people through that door. So, like, that's the true meaning of success is, like, how many people can you bring? Can you bring the mm-hmm. whole team with you instead of breaking yourself? And what happens is I was helping individuals. So if I'm helping, I'm donating, I'm doing this, and I'm helping people move forward and, and, and they're shifting. And sometimes you can help people just by leading by example. I look, right. I was buying houses. My homeboy was like, look, I know Corey. I can do this. And like they just get that visual and know that they can also do it. So sometimes it's just leading by example. Let me be very clear. The other piece is, is that our communities are so broken to a certain degree and we need the sharpest individuals representing us. And what happens in politics, it was one of the presidents, John Adams, said this. He said, if the good people fail to run for office, everybody else will. So somebody's going to run for that seat. And if they don't have a clear vision, if they don't have long term and short term goals in reference to what they're trying to achieve and a time frame in which they're trying to achieve it, then that seat is going to be held by someone that's not doing the, the greatest piece for that district. And, and that's where my just frustration built off of. Young people weren't able to cut through. They couldn't raise the resources. I knew that I know how to leverage money. I said I, we ended up putting together about $50,000 to run for the House of Delegates. And when I ran for the Maryland State Senate, we ended up raising about 175000 They spent three fifty on me, but we ended up raising enough money to be able to get our message out and do what we need to do. But unfortunately, everybody can't say that. And I've raised small, so people give me $2, $5, $10, and folks will give me large. But you have to be able to ask. You have to be able to right. leverage the relationship and because you're doing it for a good reason you're helping other people it's not like right. you're doing it to take advantage of the system you're doing it for a good reason
0: right so let me ask you this when you think of what the government at large is doing right now if you had to grade them from zero to 100 on how they're doing in regards to being equitable what grade would you give and why
1: Man, I would definitely say that like we get uh, C or D. I think that folks do try to be intentional. So you see, but the the challenge about being intentional is you got to follow it all the way through. You can't just do it. You got to watch the implementation. You got to watch how it originate. So like there are some folks that are about the business of making sure that equity, uh, equitable lens is looked at with everything. That's not majority. That's not a huge percentage, but it's work. And folks don't want to work that hard. Trying to help the neighborhoods that need it the most. If it was easy, everybody would be doing it. The problem would be solved. It would be done. Like, this is hard work because I'll say it to this degree. I'll give you examples because that's the best way you can do it. So you have white developers, you have white-led agency heads, and you have white nonprofits. So sometimes, and Martin Luther King said this, the people that talk about they trying to help you, the white liberal, can be your worst enemy because they're out there championing something and you can do it for yourself. But all that it says you got these three groups of people and imagine the develop, and they're deciding the development decisions within your neighborhood. So you know that this neighborhood is 80, 90 percent black and they don't even know that these decisions are being made on their half. So one of the things that I said, Sequoia, was I know that this this government money that's being subsidized for these projects have to go before the Board of Public Works. I said, if they don't tell me. I asked the treasurer to hold it up and I want you to come see me and I want you to talk about the project. I want to understand how does it help the neighborhood and did you communicate with those respective communities? Mm. Now, here's where it gets tiring. So I had a developer that I had a hard conversation with. No, I was not playing with them and they did it a second time. And the second time they say, hey, do you want to come to the groundbreaking? And you know what? I just was so beat that. Sometimes you just get sick and tired of arguing people like, man, why do I always got to talk to you? So, you know what? I didn't respond. I was like, oh, I think I'll be there. But then I, I emailed him about 24, 48 hours before. And I said, you know what? I told you about this. I said, I'm not coming. I do not want my community to feel as though I signed off on this project, that I know that you did not have a conversation, that you did not do it in your due diligence, and having to have that. And these are nonprofits. These are the people that are supposed to be helping you.
0: Mm-hmm. So, like,
1: the government is supposed, the agency is that's supposed to be helping you. The developer has said that they're, development for the greater good of communities that's supposed to be helping you. They're not helping you if they, like, what they say? Like, you give a man a fish, he eat for a day. You teach a man a fish, he eat for a lifetime. Like, you have to make sure that folks are engaged and they understand these processes because eventually we don't need white developers to do it. We can do it ourselves in our neighborhoods. And that's the the message that I try my best. But it's, it's very, it's tiring. It's, it weighs on you. It's heavy to kind of feel like you're under assault all the time to to kind of explain to folks and let them know, hey, I know you you think you're doing the right thing, but let me tell you, that's not how equitable decisions are made.
0: Right. So for, you know, white developers and white nonprofit-led nonprofits and all of those, from their perspective, it's like, I'm really just in here trying to do the right thing. I get the talk and do it, but I'm just trying to help. Why is it, I understand, I fully understand where you're coming from, but if you had to tell one of them, very specifically yep. why it's a problem. Yep. Why is that a problem?
1: So so here's why it's a problem. So if you have a community that is 42% poverty level, that means that they need more people in there that has income because they already are concentrated. It's a certain high concentration of poverty already that exists. So I'm not saying that affordable houses isn't important, but the reality is, is that we have to have inclusive neighborhoods. Affordable housing needs to be where the income is already there so that those folks that utilize the affordable housing can enjoy the same supermarket, can enjoy the same schools, can enjoy the same things. You get no benefit by putting more poor people in a poor neighborhood that don't Mm. have fresh food. Got these liquor stores, school is already challenging. Like you have to make sure that there's a level of diversification from an income standpoint because it's all, it's all it's gonna do is perpetuate a problem that's already there and make our jobs harder as elected officials because the, the issues are gonna amplify because the income isn't there already. So like that's a clear you you can't get no more no. clear cut then like you and and the people that will know that are the people on the ground doing the work. They will say, hey, here's what they know what they need in their neighborhood.
0: Right. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So, again, for people who are listening, it's not about you being a, a white developer or white this or whatever. It's about just really understanding what's going on in that neighborhood and taking the time to talk to the people in the neighborhood to understand what they need. Because if you are trying to do good, but you're not really talking to the people who you're trying to do the good for. You're not. Are you really doing good? And and to his point, it,
1: it's especially talking to like the legacy resident. You got some of these neighborhoods. We're very clicky because you've got older African-American women that have been living in those neighborhoods 40, 50 years. They know the kids, the grandkids and like they deserve to be talked to. They own the mm-hmm. home like th- that. That is their neighborhood. They've been there longer than you've been there.
0: Yeah. Let me ask this. So in the current political climate, with everything going on with the pandemic and all of that stuff, a lot of people are feeling really left out and feeling fatigued and have been for a long time, not even just due to this, but this just exacerbates all of that. So what would you say to people who feel like there's no reason that they should be involved in politics. The people in the communities who have just kind of given up and said, you know what, I'm just I'm not interested in being engaged civically because they're not listening to me. They don't care.
1: Yeah, I would definitely say that first, the, the time that we need you is even greater at this moment because of the health pandemic. I'm gonna move to a, a number of different issues very, very swiftly. Education the learning loss that our young people are enduring at this moment over this 2 years will affect a generation like they're not going to be affected a year not going to be affected 2 years because of that learning loss they're going to be affected and behind for a generation so you got to think about how do we recoup we know that if we double down on summer opportunities around learning we double down on night opportunities to be able to learn we double down on the uh, extra resources that's necessary to kind of uh, help them accelerate and catch up on the stuff that they've lost. But our young people are facing a very young and that's and that's across the board. So the only people that won in this is typically if you were sending your kid to a private school, a lot of the private schools didn't stop going even during mm. the pandemic. And what happens is they were already winning. If you was if you could afford to go to the private school already, mm-hmm. you winning. winning. But then they, 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 they increase that gap. So now you've gotten e- a even greater advantage than those kids that needed to catch up. So that's right. one of the points that I would like to say. The other piece is, is that there's a significant, significant amount of federal resources coming to our neighborhoods. And we have to be in the decision making pieces of how this flows through the neighborhoods. And the city of Baltimore, city of Baltimore got over $600 million in ARPA funding. The state of Maryland currently has over $4 billion surplus because of the federal resources that have come because of the hype and and people making money and the taxes being being drawn. And then you got to think they got the bill or IIJ money, the uh, investment, the transportation money that's coming from uh, Biden. That's several billion dollars coming to one jurisdiction over a period of time. That's going to do some great work within our neighborhoods. And we have to make sure that all of those dollars are looked at as, as from an equity lens. Because the reality is, is that Sequoia, we all pay taxes. Rich people don't just pay taxes. Middle class folks don't just pay taxes. We all pay taxes right. and we all should benefit from the tax dollar.
0: Right. So if I, as an individual, want to make sure that my tax dollars are spent in a way that makes sense to me, what can I do because a lot of people just feel like I mean it doesn't matter right it doesn't mm-hmm. I I can call my senator but I mean what is he going to do, right like
1: yeah now you you hit a good point so so I always say all politics is a, lo- a local so while the federal government may be in disarray I do think that on a local level on the state level that it still matters I've watched a number of these decisions that's decided by thirteen votes thirty votes and things of that nature so these are close margins that people are winning in these local and state elections. And what you can do is when you see things that's in front of it, reach out to your councilperson, reach out to your delegate, reach out to your Senator. Sequoia, I try my best to answer each and every email, each and every email for the last eight years that I've been in office myself. I may forward it to my staff, but I look at each and every email. And the best ones that I like is the ones that are authentic, they're not automated or generated from someone. This is somebody emailing me because they care about a specific issue. And don't take it for granted. It's 2,000 bills introduced in the Maryland General Assembly. It's no way that somebody's reading 2,000 bills. We read the bills that are in our respective committees and the ones that our constituents are putting on our radar and say, hey, I disagree with this part of it. And what that does is it makes me go and look and see what does it do? How can I make it better? And typically, I'm an electrician. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm not saying that I'm in the cultural arts space. So you know what I do when I'm in the cultural arts space? I reach out to Dr. Martin with the Great Blacks and Wax Museum. I'm not in the education space. Typically, I reach out to my educators to help me understand how does this impact or have a deep impact or a greater impact on our young people. So I'm looking for the subject matter experts to help me to navigate the 100,000 people that we represent and that we're making great choices for them. So I would definitely say that I do think that local politics matters. I do think that state politics matters. And I think that's the people that help us to move and navigate those spaces. So I would say reach out to those folks and see what what is the role, what is the, how you can be of assistance.
0: Absolutely. And so to that point, voting in those local elections and making sure that the people that are going to have your back in that way are voting in the office. I think we all go and we flock to the presidential election, but we forget this local sheriff is getting mm-hmm. over here, exactly. you know, somebody's elected him of- and that's going to, impact whether you get pulled over or whether you you get to go home or all of those different things that we fear as a community, but we don't engage in that way because we and part of it is we just weren't taught to, right? We were taught, oh, you go vote for president. Mm -hmm. So I love that. You talked a little bit earlier about how, how you championed the legislation that restored the voting rights to Marylanders felony convictions, right? Do you see yourself spearheading or being involved in similar pushes for this to happen nationwide?
1: You know what? So like, I do think that Maryland blazed the trail, especially as you see voting rights being overturned every year in my um, Southern states. Um, Like, it's just horrendous. So we have to, right after we did it, you know who took it it up? Virginia took it up and they then moved the needle on it. Then you saw Kentucky move uh, in the right direction on it. And Sequoia, like I build on it every time. So just last year, we're going to have the first time in Maryland, we have these drop boxes, drop boxes all over the place when you are voting. So what happens? I said, well, why don't we got a drop box in the jail? So I said, the folks that are committed at our uh, Department of Corrections, they haven't been found in the pretrial centers. They haven't been found guilty of any crime. They're there because maybe they can't pay their bail. Maybe they can't do this, but they're not. They still have the right to vote. So last year, we passed a piece of policy that the first one in the whole state of Maryland as a pilot is going to be in Baltimore City's detention center. And those folks that are there have the right to vote. They'll be able to utilize that drop box right there. So we're always trying our best to move the needle and figure it out. And like, how do we engage disengaged communities?
0: Nice. What are some other things that you that are important to you that you see yourself doing over the next few years? Mines is
1: mines. You, you you struck the conversation, so I'm always trying to flip it on its head and trying to move the needle for my uh, communities. Some of the things that we're working on right now: occupational licenses. There are a number of career paths that you need occupational licenses for. We have a bill in uh, Senate Bill One Eleven that basically says that. Our agencies would have to do predeterminations that are binding. As long as folks are telling the truth, they don't catch subsequent charges and things of that nature. So you know on the front end whether you can even get that occupational license. Whether instead of going through it, spending two three years, spending resources that you know right then and there that this can happen. So like my a big advocate of uh, our schools fought very hard, and, and one of the reasons why I ran for Senate was because I thought that. In 21st century schools where we built 28 brand new schools, only three of them was in the district that I was in when I was watching everybody else get seven, six, and Mm. things of that nature, everybody get more than three schools. So from an equity standpoint, I said, how... Do East Baltimore, one of the only people more poor than East Baltimore is the folks of West Baltimore. So like, how do we only get three brand new schools when everybody else is getting more? And spearheading the effort to get a brand new schools over at Fairleigh in Northeast, groundbreaking for Fairleigh will happen in June of this year. But th- those were easy tasks because they also had like a $60 million fiscal note. Assigned to them in order to do that, we had to find where that money was being cobbled and put together for those young folks to be able to enjoy the amenities that mm-hmm. everybody else was doing. So that so so, mine's is I'm just hustling for people at this moment, and my priorities are specifically how do I move that needle on unfair issues? We got the Easy Pass uh, in New Jersey, everywhere else they got Easy Pass. What happens without Easy Pass is they weren't billing folks for about nine months. Mm. Come to find out. I got my bill and I, I thought somebody stole my credit card because they had five charges back to back to back to back. And then I said to myself, like, this ain't right. Like, so, so these folks, if you pay your Easy Pass late or don't pay it in whole, so you can't even set up an installment plan that you then get sent to CCU, which is Central Collections Unit, and your, your credit's affected. And they also charge a $25 late fee for $2. So I was like, who gets to mark up a thousand percent late fee? I've right. never seen any business. i was like $2.10, $2.50. You can even charge me $4, but how do you charge somebody, and it to in totality, you end up with $27 for a $2 bill. And I was just like, look, you need to waive these fees. Right. You need to set up installment plans. So like Mines is always thinking about the person that may not have it and how do I move that needle for them?
0: Absolutely. I love that. And it's in so many different ways that you don't even think about. Right. Because I have I've had a couple of different conversations. I have a conversation with your friend Robin Haynes. And so that'll be later in the season. And so we talked a little bit about stuff like that. Right. Like having jobs that pay lower wages and how you get in these jobs. Like I in 2014 and gotten laid off and wound up looking at other jobs in the meantime until I found the job that I wanted to go to. And one was. At office depot and they were paying seven dollars and fifty cents an hour and i was thinking I was in california and i was like dang gas is like 320 or something like that at that time <laughs> i was like you know i'm gonna have to work a couple hours just to pay for gas to get to work and then if i want to eat something while i'm there i mean to get a loaf of bread it's gonna you know how much time right, am i gonna have right, to work right. to do all of this stuff right just for and that's not even like going out and having fun or living that's just basic necessities right and then you think about the fact that if I was to get an interview, right, I don't know if my, I don't, the inter- interview isn't given, right? So am I going to take off time from this given money that I'm about to receive to go get this interview that might be a better situation, but that's not a given, right? And I started thinking about all of the people that deal with that on a regular. You know, they have children, they have these situations where they really are impacted and couldn't get in this cycle that's never ending surrounding money and, and other insecurities that happen as a result of these financial issues. And so we look at many states now that they're looking at increasing minimum wages and things like that. Are there other things like that that you see that are necessary that aren't maybe on the table at this particular moment in terms of being in the public consciousness?
1: Now I think that you're absolutely right in reference to the minimum wage. I did that back in 2019. Will escalate up to fifteen dollars over a period of time. We're at twelve dollars and fifty cents, eleven seventy-five at the at at the moment. So every year, uh, back in 2019 to 2020, it went up uh, from $10.10 to eleven. Then it went to eleven seventy-five. 2021. So it is twelve fifty. And um, what happens from that standpoint is is that here's what I remember. My mom working two jobs, sometimes three jobs. I can remember being in elementary school where my mother left the house before I went to school, walked myself back home from school. She say, close the door and she come home seven, eight o'clock at night. So like you got these young folks taking care of themselves. You got parents out here that's working too. It's not like they're bad people. It's just that the circumstances that they're in is just pretty challenging. The reality is, is that the more we increase wages, So when we looked at who the minimum wage impacted, 50 percent of them were black folks and then 55 percent were women. So this directly impacted black women more than it impacted any other segment or race Mm -hmm. uh, from that standpoint. So that's what I mean, just doing intentional pieces of policy. Mm -hmm. Was I happy with the long time that it took to hit fifteen dollars? So it'll hit $15, I believe 20, 25 or something like that. But like, that's the challenge. But at the end of the day, we got a Republican governor. So I could have fought and said, no, we we got, we need $15 now. Like, but, but at the end of the day, like my folks are hurting. They need that. Like that person that's making 10, 10 is like, damn, I'm making $11 right now. Well, I'm making 1175. Right. And so, so like, I am on a thing where we need it right now. But at the end of the day, I also have to figure out like, what is achievable? What, put, what puts points on the board? And how do I move the needle for my folks, especially the people that are adoring that minimum wage at that moment?
0: Right. You bring up the governor that you have now. At the beginning or at the end of last year, you wrote a piece about your New Year's resolutions for Governor Hogan. And one of the things that I really loved is that you talked about some of the successes that you've had. And we've talked about a few of those today. Can you tell us a little bit more about any of those Things and and how it's just been working with Republicans in general. Because as a general public, we see it as very polarizing and we see y'all fighting against each other and then we see us not getting anywhere. There was a a meme, and I'll let you answer after I say this, but there was a meme that I saw last week and it said, (laughs) The working class, help us, please, Republicans, (laughs) no. Democrats, no LGBT flag, BLM, hashtag BLM, and a heart, right? <laughs> so, and that's how a lot of us really truly feel. Like it doesn't we're so disengaged at this point. Like, but I, I yep. love the fact that you're out doing good work, but how is how are y'all working together? And what are some things that you could say to some of your counterparts to better support y'all working together to help the general public?
1: You know what? It's tough because I do try my best to always figure out like, where's the middle at and where, how can I move the needle and move it with the most amount of people that I can uh, work with? And the challenge is when we did, when we did voting rights for parole and probation, the governor vetoed it. It's like, look, man, like then that makes it even harder because now we not only need a majority to vote to for a bill to pass, then we got to come back and override the governor's veto. You only do that with three-fifths of the vote. So you need 85 in the House and you need 29 in the Senate. Uh, We talked about minimum wage. I did minimum wage, the governor vetoed it. So now I need 85 in the House, 29 in the Senate. So all it does is it puts, it makes you exert even more energy because you don't have the executive at that moment that just believe in some of the philosophical views that you may have or some, or just maybe wasn't exposed to some of the challenges that we have. And, and then you have to go out here and just, just work a little bit harder from that standpoint. I do try my best to figure out like where are there opportunities to be able to be there instead of like just the bashing or or, or just like, so that op-ed that I wrote from a New Year's Eve, kind of like you said, talked about the things that we were able to do successfully without the governor, but also putting forward some of the things that we could possibly work together on. Fresh food opportunities, job opportunities, like let's figure out like what is it that we can work on and how do we move that needle? And then obviously, nobody's going to agree 100%. So, sit, sit that aside, but what gets us up the hill at the fastest pace to help
0: these people? Got you. So, we've spent most of this conversation talking about what you've done, what you and your peers do and can do for the people. Let's pivot a little bit and talk about what the people can do. How can mm. they get civically engaged? And how can we make a difference in the communities instead of just saying, oh, the system is against me, all of that stuff. What can we do?
1: Mm-hmm. I'm going to start with my young people and work my way up. So okay. my young people, when I was, uh, I'm an avid reader at this moment and I try my best to just hold my nieces, my nephews, all our young folks in the city, like just be a mentor to folks. So like, I definitely say like, read pick up as much as you can a lot of times i got through the situations i was in i might not have been able to see it but i was able to read about it and help me envision and things of that nature it sounds very cliche in reference to talking about schooling but i try my best as a father for like i'm always pushing the school piece of it like kennedy do this reagan do this like this is so important so i say to all my young folks the best education that you can get um, knowing that when you graduate from high school Maybe you're not going to do the traditional route and go to one of our distinguished universities or colleges. Maybe you're going to go to the apprenticeship route, but please, please, please try your best to expose yourself. We do apprenticeship tours and things of that nature, but look for different paths so that you can kind of cheat a little bit and get that level of exposure. And if you are going to some form of higher education and things of that nature, please get the best education that you can. I did three years at a community college after I graduated from the apprenticeship. And I did it when I could pay for it. So I paid for it as long as when I was going along and then got the four-year degree from that standpoint. So I'm just saying to my young people, just always, and when it's in front of you, just look to be great. Don't look to be good. Don't look to be okay. Look to be great because our communities are dependent on you to do just that. For my other folks that that's that's in my 20s, my 30s, and my 40s, we, ha- we have to be civically engaged within our community. So I told you that I fell short because mine was, I was trying my best to get money and I really didn't understand it until my mid-20s, my 30s, that, that this was how important this was. But like our neighborhoods only thrive by the people, we are our neighborhoods. So the people that are engaged, whether it's your community association, whether it's the Urban League, NAACP, maybe it's with one of your fraternities, your sororities, but we have, we are who's going to, It's nobody else that's going to come in our neighborhoods to help us. It's going to be us that helps our neighborhoods and then I say, well, just to my seniors, just thank you, you all that put 30, 40 years of your life to any form of that occupation, but do not give up on us. We, uh, we hear you. We want to lead. We want to continue to lead. And we want to be the shining stars that you know that we could be. And, and for those folks that made it. So we got some of the folks that make it Sequoia and then they move up out the hood or they just remove themselves away from the situation. That's when you have to double down. As stated, like money, m- money helps. The reality is, the true measure of success is how many people that you could bring and put on your level that you're moving at and in that space. And that's what we need. WB Du Bois called it the talented 10th. We need that talented 10th to make sure that they're bringing everybody else so they can join the talented 10th. And then we talk about the talent 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or, from that standpoint. But we ha- they have a strong obligation to give back to the neighborhoods that gave to them, instill it in them, and gave them a chance.
0: I love that. I love that. People who are listening might not know, but I actually met you through the Goldman Sachs Ten Thousand Small Businesses program. And do you have anything to add to business owners, particularly those in the Baltimore area?
1: You know what? I'm I'm currently reading The Color of Money. I was given given it by uh, my friend Joe Haskins. He owns, or oh, he's he's he started uh, Harbor Bank, one of the few black banks in our country. And when I think about that and how much economics plays a role in reference to our success in the black community and just hearing some of the stories about Maggie Lena Walker up in Richmond in the 1900s, first woman, black woman. Let me be very clear. First black woman to start a bank like our success and how great our communities were in North Carolina and Tulsa, Oklahoma and things of that nature. Like we are great people. And let's never forget that. But the reality is, is that it's economics that moves the needle. And we saw that we already saw the blueprint. The blueprint has been there in reference to how we achieve this. And it's our businesses that are going to uh, help us move that needle. So mine is I grind, I save, I give. And and like, I know that that plays such a large role in reference to our community. So to my businesses, I just say, if you need us, like first, like make sure that you take care to take take advantage Of the resources that's out there from local, state, and federal level, but at the same time, when you are successful in these neighborhoods, let's figure out how to have a greater uh, input, a greater output, so that more people can follow the lead that you projected or the path that you're setting.
0: Absolutely. All right, so I'm going to ask you a couple questions that I ask everybody on this that comes on. All right,
1: that's scary.
0: (laughs) Some of them I feel like you kind of answered in many ways, but I'm looking forward to your answers. So. We talked a lot about what got you going and how you got into this mission. What are some things that you think or that you wish to see happen that'll make you feel like, you know what? I did that. My mission is complete.
1: I just grow as a person every year. And that's what I challenge myself. Just like, don't be the same person that you were in 2019. Like, grow as a person. More recently, last year, I was able to do a genealogy report. So commissioned a genealogy report to really get an understanding of my family. So like being able to see and get your, I got my mother's, mother's lineage. And it got all the way back to the 1700s, 1800s. That's something Mm. that I can leave my kids. And I feel like, oh, I did my job. Like, I did my work. So Sequoia, so for the first day of black history, so this was two days ago, this took three, four months to do. So after doing that genealogy report, I said, how dope would it be to have all the women that we have pictures of in a portrait that I can hang in my dining room so that my daughters could see that every day that they wake up? So we've got six generations in one portrait uh, where I got my great, great, great grandmother. Right there so they can see of the people who they came from and understand their lineage. So I felt like my job was that like when I look at that, I'm like, oh, I did my job. So like it's things like that. It's not money at this moment. It's like, how can I have such a deep impact that's unspeakable for my kids, for my kids, kids, but also for other kids across the city of Baltimore and the state of Maryland? I
0: love that. I was going to ask this next question, but I feel like you just covered it. I don't even know if you can answer it any better than you just did, <laughs> but <laughs> I will try. And you could say that's my answer. We've talked about all that you've done from your work as an apprentice, from being a, a young person, from doing your apprenticeships, from your work as an entrepreneur and now to your work as a public official. All of that aside, when people think of Corey McRae, what is it that you want your lasting legacy to be? Mm hmm.
1: Just committed family, did the right thing because it was the right thing to do. And and he loved the city.
0: Got you. I love that. All right. So I guess the last thing would be, you know, tell the people where can they reach you and how can they best support the work that you do?
1: Yep, I'm on Facebook, Senator Cory McRae on Instagram, Twitter, Senator Cory McRae. Just please engage. If you have different ideas that's happening across the country, um, things that should be modeled in the state of Maryland, send them my way. Feel free to shoot me an email. My email is my name, Corey, C-O-R-Y, period, McCray, M-C-C-R-A-Y, at senate.state.md.us. As stated, I answer my own emails. I'm looking at all of them, but that's best how to support the work. Like, let's help move the needle for the communities that need it the most.
0: I love that. Thank you so much, Senator McRae, for joining us. And most importantly, thank you for the work that you do. It is so evident that you love your people, that you love your city, and that you just really, like you said, are intentional about what you do. And that really shines through. And it's so important. So thank you.
1: No, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. It was like just pretty cool just to be able to hang out with you, spend some time and just hope, hopefully just even if it resonates with just one person, Sequoia, I know we did what we were supposed to
0: do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. So that's it, folks. If you want to keep up with Senator McRae, he's given you his contact information. I'll also put it in the show notes for you. If you want to keep up with Diversity Be Like, be sure to check us out online. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at at Diversity Be Like. You can also shoot us an email at diversitybelike at gmail.com. And feel free to join the conversation on your favorite social network using hashtag Diversity Be Like. Until next time.